I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides petting cats. If you're that Carrie, was, and she, that's you. That was my addition. <laughs> and we may be a little biased, but we think reading people are the coolest people. So this week, we talk with Brooke Lauren Davis, a debut author whose young adult book, The Hollow Inside, offers some unique characters. There's Phoenix, the protagonist, whose mother Nina has led them away from Phoenix's father and towards a man from Nina's past named Ellis. And he's a successful and charismatic man who Nina believes ruined her life. So it's a story about truth, trust, family, revenge, and what lengths people will go to to salvage their reputation. Brooke started writing this book as a 16-year-old growing up in Chillicothe, Ohio. She worked on it for 10 years and then got it published by Bloomsbury Young Adult this past May, an imprint that originally published the Harry Potter books. And Brooke now lives in Louisville, Kentucky, where she is a bookseller at our local indie bookstore, Carmichael's, when she isn't diligently writing. But first, <laughs> what, so, what have we been doing? What I'm have sure we been everybody doing? is just waiting with bated breath to know what Carrie and Amy have been up to. Well, last week we, well, I guess you worked on it for two weeks, but two weeks, um, yes. I only was involved with it a little bit last week, but we worked with some high school students on developing their own podcasts. Yeah, so the Lincoln Foundation has a program called the Whitney Young Scholars. And so these are academically gifted, but socioeconomically disadvantaged students. And so one of the programmers at WFMP uh, Louisville, where our show is broadcast, she coordinated with Lincoln Foundation folks and set it up. So it was super fun working with high schoolers. I talked to them the first week and just kind of told them about how you and I started doing our podcast and, and radio show and the things we've learned and how we had plan A and plan B. And Anyway, so they, they asked some really good questions. I enjoyed talking to them and some of the questions they asked. And one of them was, do you get nervous listening to yourself or listening to your own voice? And I absolutely do. I don't anymore so much, but back in the beginning, I certainly did get nervous listening to my own voice and yeah. recording. It was a little nerve wracking. And I and think I still, a lot of them were nervous about that. I mean, you know, we edit this. And so I still do not and would not feel comfortable <laughs> doing just kind of on the fly. I don't trust my mouth. <laughs> mostly. <laughs> I don't trust your mouth either. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I get started, <laughs> sometimes the expletives fly. So yeah. Another new thing we have coming up is that we, it should be live, I think, in the next week to week and a half, is we're going to have a new website. Yeah, it's going to look much nicer, much prettier, much more professional. We have been working with this wonderful programmer, Nat Martin, and she has been revamping our website, which I hope will be live soon. But we're going to have some new features on it. It's going to be easier to find the show notes. You know, we talk about cats and dogs all the time, but we're going to start featuring our guests' pets on there because I feel like since the pandemic, they have almost been a guest as well because you can often hear them in the background. So they might as well, you know, get some FaceTime on our website. 
And we're going to be featuring some uh, reader recommendations of books as well. So I'm really excited for that to go live and for everybody to check it out. Well, so you, you know, bailed on me this weekend. Not bailed that, on um, you? What were we supposed to do? What were we? No, no, I just mean, you know, you just went oh, on gallivanting around, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I sat in my house where I'm actually pretty happy. I don't, you know, I'm just, I'm just teasing you. I'm totally happy to stay in my house and not be around all these people who are unvaccinated. And, you know, we won't get into that. But anyway, you had fun. I did. Visiting yeah. in a place that you can't seem to get enough of. This has turned in the year of visiting Cincinnati. And I don't really know why I have, I mean, I do visit Cincinnati, not infrequently. My sister lives in Cincinnati. But you and I went a few weeks ago, and then when I went with a different set of friends this past weekend, we did like a little girls trip there. I think it's just, it's very easy to get to, and there's a lot of things to do there. But I visited the Scentsy Book Bus a second time. You and I visited when we went a few weeks ago. She had a pop-up. She's going to think you're stalking her. I know, but I keep bringing her some business because I just... (laughs) So we went to this cute little coffee shop where she was set outside on a Saturday morning, and I brought four friends with me and we all bought stuff and I bought another puzzle because my father-in-law really liked the puzzle that I got him when I was with you and I got some books for my mom and I got a book for my son and it makes you feel not so bad about buying all those books when you know that for every book that you buy she donates all the proceeds to buy books for underprivileged kids. Uh, If you didn't get to listen to our episode that we did with Melanie Moore from the Cincy Book Bus, if you go back to episode 54, that has been a favorite of uh, many of our listeners. But it is just the cutest idea. You know, whenever I go to these things, I always think, Maybe that's what I should do when I grow up is I should have a a book bus. I could do a book bus for Louisville. It would be so cool. And she can kind of set her own hours, pop up wherever she wants. But one of the things I love about the book bus when you visit it is, I mean, it's not really the same as going to a bookstore. I mean, it is, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. She has books, but they're all like very carefully curated. You know, it's limited But in that limitation, it's also wonderful because most of the books she's read, not all of them, she has some new releases and some bestsellers. I'm not sure she's read all those, but some of the ones that are from Europe, she has some some special books that like she features on her social media that she has read and just loved. And I don't know, I really appreciate that because you feel like almost any book that you would buy there, you're going to like. I still haven't read the book that I bought. When, uh, when we were up there. But that's because I am reading something in preparation. That's because you're reading Dune. I am rereading Dune. Yes. So I read it in 2000 or after 2000. There was a mini series that I watched and loved. And then I read the books and I read like almost all the books. Towards the end, it gets really, it gets weird. But anyway, I am preparing for the 2021 movie that's coming out this fall. And it's got Timothy Chalamet and Zendaya. So I am super excited for that. Actually, my husband and I are both reading Dune right now. So it's very romantic. You're reading the same book and then you're going to watch <laughs> Dune together. We're, and we're going to watch the the series, the 2000 series again. Oh, that's yeah. what romance looks like when you've been married for you know, for a 20 long time. plus years. Yes. 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 Very and when cool. you're both sci-fi, a little bit of sci-fi nerds. He's definitely more of a sci-fi nerd than I am, but yeah, that's true love there. Right. 
Well, I think I've told you a little bit about a series that we have been watching that I actually heard about from another former guest, Hannah Zimmerman, who was with a book club. The uh, Monstrous Regiment. The Monstrous Regiment Book Club. They were 20 and 30-somethings. But we follow each other on uh, Facebook and Instagram. She recommended this show. It's a BBC show. It won some BAFTA awards. You can now find it on Amazon Prime, but it's called The Detectorists. It's set in England, in rural England, in this cute little village. And these two guys are metal detectorists. And I know that that sounds strange. And how can you make a series about that? But it's just this charming little show. It's funny, but it's not like laugh out loud. It's like these very small little moments of humor. It's like a little yes, chuckle. Humor. It's like a yeah. little chuckle here and there. And it's, I don't know, I find it just like very calming, very sweet. I was telling my friends about it this weekend. They're like, yes, but is there like a storyline? Does like anything happen? Yes, things do. <laughs> there are storylines. <laughs> things do happen. Just this cute little show. And I think you've watched a few, haven't you? I have, yeah. And I, I like it. And if you've ever seen the Pirates of the Caribbean series of films, one of the characters... Rigetti, he's the pirate whose eyeball keeps falling out. He is one of the leads in The Detectorist. And so it's kind of interesting, you know, if you've watched him in other things to see him in this. It's I like doing that. You know, I like seeing actors do different different things. So he's uh, obviously not a pirate in this and his eyeball has remained intact so far at least in The Detectorist he, in the episodes I've I've watched. He definitely has a look that's highly recognizable. I do want to mention uh, the episode with Hannah and Amelia Reeser, and that was episode 34. So, so. she um, is always tossing out some good TV show recommendations on her Facebook page. So that was one that I thought, huh, that sounds intriguing. How could you make a show about detectorists? And it's really cute. And I love the theme song. I love the theme song. I put it on my Spotify and it's like an earworm now and I can't stop singing it in my head. <laughs> you know, Low stakes British humor. They're constantly on search for gold or some sort of like great historical find. And what they keep finding is bottle tops and matchbox cars. Yeah. <laughs> but, okay. I think it's time that we talk to Brooke about her slightly sinister and dark book. The hollow inside. Okay. Brooke, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You know, Brooke, I realized that we grew up not that far from one another. I grew up right across the Ohio River from Marietta, Ohio. And I think you grew up, spent part of your childhood near Chillicothe, which they're not that far from one another. So I am familiar with the part of the country where your new book is set. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I'm always shocked by how many people know exactly where Chillicothe is. So tell us just a little bit about your childhood and your reading and writing life. So were you a big reader when you were a kid? Um, You know, I wasn't initially. It's interesting. I always just like had too much going on. I think I was really hyper and couldn't sit still long enough to read. But I remember when I fell in love with books, like the particular moment I was in New York City in 2003. I was in third grade with my mom and we were shopping in like this giant Toys R Us. And all of a sudden the power goes out and apparently the power had gone out all over the city. 
And initially I wasn't thinking like 9-11 terrorist attack kind of thing, but my mom, like that's immediately where her mind went because it had only happened a couple years before. And I think a lot of people were thinking the same thing. So everyone was kind of panicking. You know, everyone was like running out into the streets and stuff, not sure what was going on. And we didn't get answers for a long time about what was happening. It was just like a normal blackout, but it was all over the Northeast apparently. And we went back to our hotel and it was too hot to hang out in the room because it was summertime. So everyone converged in this courtyard outside and this woman was out there reading a book to her kids. And I think just like everyone breathe the sigh of relief, I think. All the kids migrated towards her and they were eventually sitting down on the ground all around her and listening to her read this book. And ever since then, I've always turned to books for comfort when I'm feeling uncertain or all kinds of situations now, really. But that's initially why I gravitated towards them. Wow. Do you remember what book it was? Uh, It was Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Of course, I went and got all the rest of them. (laughs) That's an amazing story. Most people probably don't have a moment, like a visceral moment where, aha, like I love books. So I love that you do have one. That's really Yeah, that's really yeah. Awesome. You know, my dad was stuck on the other side of the Lincoln Tunnel because he was at a meeting and no one would let them come through. So for some reason, couldn't reach him. So it was just kind of like this weird, stressful situation. And then somebody whips out a book and <laughs> changes the whole mood. Have you ever read The Book Thief? I have not. No, it's been on my list forever. And my sister loves that book. <laughs> well, you you might want to pick it up because actually, like when you were telling that story, that is the book that I thought about. So that's a great connection between that experience for you and, and an actual book. So you said Harry Potter, you went and got that series. Did you tend to be drawn to fantasy? Oh, yeah. And I, I still am. And I'm surprise myself that I don't write fantasy because that's, you know, my top 10 reads all have some kind of magical element. But I think fantasy has always just seemed too expansive to me to like get a hold of. There are no rules. So (laughs) big, like too many things that I could do with it. So I haven't quite tackled that challenge yet. That's a great point. I never thought about that. But I teach writing to middle and high school students. And I think, you know, there's a lot of freedom in being able to write about anything. But sometimes it's nice to have some guardrails, I guess, to your writing. So that's a that's a great point. Right, exactly. Like the bumpers on a lane in a bowling alley. (laughs) Exactly. I know I still need those and I'm 47. So So your debut novel, The Hollow Inside, was published in May of this year. So can you give our listeners just kind of a brief summary of what the book is about? Yeah, it's essentially uh, told from the point of view of a teenage girl named Phoenix, who's sort of drifting around with her mom. They, They don't really live in any particular place. They stay in this van and go from place to place until her mom decides that it's time to go back to uh, mom's hometown and get revenge on the man who ruined her life years and years ago. So it's Phoenix's journey getting to know what happened and the reader as well getting to know, you know, exactly what happened to mom to make her so angry. So you spent part of your childhood in rural Ohio, which is the setting of the story, not the exact town. I I assume that the one that you're using Jasper Hollow is imaginary. But what is it about the small town feel that made you want to have it as the setting in your novel? Yeah, I've actually found since then that I keep gravitating towards small towns. I just think that they're ripe with interesting stories because it's like this push-pull of 
there's comfort in living in a small town. There's comfort in everyone knowing who you are. You know, I got in a car wreck once and like five people drove by that I knew and they all stopped to check on me kind of thing. And then there's also like the flip side of that, where in a small town, whenever you make a mistake or do something that people perceive to be a mistake, you don't get away from that until you move. Everybody always knows you as that person until you get away from all that. So it's definitely like this push-pull of the intimacy of a small town being a good and a bad thing. So I've always thought that was really interesting. And also just the idea that um, you think you know your neighbors in a town like that, but not necessarily you know the version that they present of themselves. Um, And a lot of the time, it's shocking when the truth comes out. (laughs) That's funny. I have lived in a couple of small towns, and I can totally relate to what you're saying. We spent about four years in eastern Kentucky with my husband's first job, and it was the kind of thing where it was a very religious town. And if you didn't go to to church on Sundays, you didn't actually want to show your face outside of your home. Like if you went to the grocery store and you saw somebody that you knew, they would like hide from you in an (laughs) aisle because they didn't want you to know that they hadn't gone to church that day. But it was also wonderful because everyone's almost like adopted you, you know, as someone coming from outside, I felt like I wanted to make you feel at home. So I can totally see what you're saying about the both sides of that coin. Yeah, exactly. It can be a a blessing and a curse for sure. (laughs) I'll admit I'm about halfway through the book. So I've always lived in Louisville. Now, you know, there's suburbs outside of Louisville, but it's still considered, you know, part of the city. And so there were some things reading the book where Ellis welcomes Phoenix into his home. And I'm like, what are you thinking? Maybe I'm just not a hospitable person. (laughs) But I guess that's not unusual. If you're in a small town, that wouldn't necessarily be something unheard of. Whereas for me, it was like, what? (laughs) You know, because I wouldn't dream of doing that. I got that same note from my editor, actually, the first time she read the book. She's like, would anyone really do that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I tried to tie in more of like what Ellis's motivation in doing that would be, but also like it is not totally out of the question. Um, I've definitely known a lot of people who would do something like that, although for more altruistic reasons. (laughs) So the small town in your book, Jasper Hollow, that Amy mentioned, outwardly presents itself as kind of idyllic, but then it begins to feel a little sinister. So what specific things or are there specific things about Jasper Hollow that are based on an actual small town? And did people in your hometown think that certain characters were based on them? Whenever I'm reading something, I'm wondering like how much is true? How much is generated from your imagination? Certainly the spirit of that small town is kind of infused in the book. But as far as like people or places, I definitely did not base any characters on any real person. And, you know, when the book was coming out, I was kind of worried about people saying that because everyone in the book's terrible. (laughs) I don't want anyone thinking that I'm trying to like subtweet them or say, you know, this is how this person really is. I've had a lot of people ask me, indirectly about like what my childhood was like, you know, do I have awful parents, that kind of thing. (laughs) That's why at the beginning of the book, I dedicate it to my mom and dad. And I put there some awful parents in this book, but you guys are the best because like, no, none of those things happened to me. Yeah, author Nina LaCour, I heard her say once, like, if you write a book about a rich girl who drives a Lamborghini, everyone's going to think you're a rich girl who drives a Lamborghini. (laughs) 
I guess, just because the concept of like coming up with this whole fake world is a little foreign to people. And they think that I have to make a thinly veiled version of real life and put it on the page. Um, But that's definitely not the case. As far as the small town vibe, though, it definitely is infused with that. And Chillicothe is sort of done the same thing as Jasper Hollow, where when I was growing up there, it was a really quiet middle of nowhere town and nothing was ever going on. And when I started going back years later, it's kind of had this renaissance and there are all these new businesses opening and, you know, cool coffee shops. And it's like this great place to be. And none of that was there when I was a kid. Um, So it's really interesting to see those changes. Have there been some pros and cons about loosely basing a story in a place that you've lived? Well, because this is kind of a dark story, at times I was worried about people being offended about it, I guess, like being upset that I would represent small town Ohio this way. But for the most part, the response has been positive, even from people who are from that area and love that area have said in the reviews Yes, it is exactly this way sometimes, not to that extreme, obviously. Well, I know you went back to your hometown and you did an author talk and book signing at a local indie bookstore there. So what was it like to go back, talk about your book and what kinds of questions did the people in your hometown ask? Yeah, I mean, it was really nice. It was like this full circle moment because when I lived in Chillicothe, I did not like it (laughs) at the time. So it was definitely interesting to go back. You know, I I think everyone kind of feels that way about their hometown or a lot of people do, um, no matter what the town is. It's just, it was more about what was going on with me as a person at the time. So to go back when I was in a better place was definitely really nice. When I was a kid, I just wanted to like escape that area. And my my daydream was always to escape it by writing this hit novel. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) hitting the bestseller list and being rich and famous and moving wherever I want, which obviously not rich and famous, but you know, it was nice to to go back after I got the book published. And I just feel like 16 year old me would be really proud of going to the local bookstore and doing an event in my hometown, a bookstore that didn't exist when I was a kid. And I really wish that it had um, its Wheatberry books in Chillicothe. And it's a really excellent, magical place. That's cool. <laughs> You know, with you talking about that, it made me think about the whole idea of small town. Like I grew up in, again, you know, there's a lot of suburbs around Louisville and I grew up in what's called Okalona. You know, I don't live there anymore and I don't have negative feelings about Okalona, but I have really negative feelings about like I went to the same school from first through eighth grade. And all I wanted to do was get away from those people that I went to school with. So I think you talking about that made me think it kind of expanded the idea of setting. It's not necessarily a city or a town. It can be where you go to school, whatever that setting is where you had those, you know, and I think probably to some extent, lots of kids go through that, right? They have this experience, whether it's the people around them or where they are like, I cannot wait to escape this. So that helps me understand a little bit better hearing you talk about that. Yeah, that was 100% me in middle school and high school. And I think looking back, it was more my frustration with not knowing how to connect to people at that time. I was really shy. So it was less like the people I was around and more my trouble connecting with them. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Setting is such a big part of the story. It encompasses 
the place, but it also encompasses the kinds of people who live in that place. And you now make your home in a large city in Louisville. Are there things about writing about a small town that are different than writing about a larger urban or suburban area? I know you're, you know, you're probably writing some new things and I don't know if they're set in small towns or where they're set, but I'm just wondering if you've reflected on that at all. I mean, I'm still gravitating towards writing about small towns. And I feel like the reason for that is I moved to Louisville in February of 2020, I believe it was. And then in March, everything shut down. Oh, wow. For the pandemic. And just recently, things are starting to reopen. And I, I have not really gotten to know the city very well or any anyone in the city. Because <laughs> for the most part, I've only lived here during a pandemic. I feel like I don't know enough about city life or Louisville life to even write about it at this point. That's part of the reason why I went and got a job working as a bookseller in town because it had been like six months of me living here and I didn't know a single person. Oh. So that definitely saved me. So let's talk about Phoenix. The start of the book, the reader sees her, the main character, and she's starting to question the things her mom has told her. And and she has implicitly trusted sort of everything but you kind of see that she's starting just bits and pieces like hmm I don't know if things add up right and then reading about her made me think about my own relationship with my parents when I was a teenager and so when I was a teen I thought you know my parents were just idiots right like I was like they don't know anything and then I became a grown-up and I really was able to give them credit well Amy, on the other hand, we talked about this. She thought her parents knew everything until she was an adult. And then she realized like, oh, they were just sort of winging it, right? Like all adults. Yeah, they didn't know anything. You know, so we were having this conversation about what our experiences were as teenagers. And so I'm curious as to what kind of feedback your young adult readers have provided on were they more like Phoenix or if they sort of figured things out sooner? I guess I've I've gotten a mixture, I would say. You know, there's not a lot of people who have said much about Nina as a mother figure specifically. More of the feedback that I get about her is, you know, is she terrible or is she right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like what she's doing. So it's more like value judgments on her as a person. The thing about Nina, is she bad or is she right? She could be both of those things. Yeah, bad and right. Yeah, I've had a lot of people give me feedback about her specifically. She elicits a lot of strong opinions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I obviously wrote her to be a complicated person and a person that, you know, has a lot going on, obviously. <laughs> and in real life, people don't always respond in, in the best ways to tragedies like what she's been through. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed writing her as a character, though. Um, whether or not I think that she's she's right, I'm not sure. From Phoenix's perspective, do you feel like most teens or yourself as a teen, you know, like I talked about how I was sort of one way looking at my parents and Amy was sort of another. Did you fall into either of those categories or do you feel like young adult readers, how they look at their parents? I mean, I know when when I was a teenager, I kind of felt a little bit of both. I guess I I wanted to believe that all the adults in my life were like these omniscient beings who knew what was best for me because I definitely didn't know what was best for me at the time. But yeah, I mean, just realizing over time that, you know, they're not these infallible beings, you know, and that they all 
also have their own histories and their own problems that color everything that they do. Yeah. So that was always an interesting thing to me to explore. I know for myself, I finally realized and it took me until I was like 30 and, and had gone through therapy. People are just very egocentric. You know, I think that's just the human condition, right? But I realized at 30, things that I thought were about me in terms of my parents, it was not about me at all. You know what I mean? It was like, this is something that is my parents' issue that they have maybe had for their whole lives. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. And it took me until, again, I was an adult with my own child to go, oh, all of these different dynamics that the parent-child relationship brings about is super fascinating. And And I think there's a lot in your book that forces for me as an adult reader to kind of think about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, learning that, you know, your parents and everyone, all the adults in your life are real people, (laughs) human beings, you know, isn't always like the easiest thing to swallow for sure. Um, So I'm definitely interested in, you know, reading and writing about that. You know, I started this book when I was 16 years old and each draft you know, was like me kind of growing up, I guess. Each each draft was a different sort of phase in my life. And I think that the final draft just reflects the uh, amalgamation of, of all those eras <laughs> and like the things that I learned in that time. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. You wrote this novel when you were a teenager yourself, but you sold it for publication when you were 25. And so I'm wondering... Like, had you had it stowed away and you didn't look at it for many years or were you constantly working on it and editing it? It was definitely like a constant thing in my life. It was always in the back of my mind just for that whole nearly a decade. Um, And like I said, everything that I learned growing up kind of eventually found its way into the book in one form or another, more in like concept form, not as far as like things that happened to me specifically. But yeah, just things I was learning, like we said about adults being human beings, and everybody kind of has their own baggage that you don't necessarily know about, things like that. Because you were constantly looking at it, this might not have happened. But I know that I sometimes look back on things that I wrote, you know, maybe it's been a while and I'm like, oh my God, that's so cringy, you know, and I can imagine if if it was something I wrote when I was a teenager, I might feel that way. Did you ever have moments, you know, sort of rolling your eyes at yourself, like, oh, Yeah, I still have a printout of the first 14 pages that I wrote and definitely cringy. (laughs) A lot of things change. The main character's totally different. It used to be a boy named Tristan and just each draft, one little thing changed. So really, it's a completely different story from what I started with, um, but I consider it the same book because it was always just a slightly different draft each time until I came out with something completely different. But the one constant during all of that was Nina. She's been there from the beginning. So she was always what the story was built around for sure. So did your any of your English teachers ever know that you were working on a novel? Yes. <laughs> I didn't often share my work though. You know, I, I definitely had this like reckless confidence as a teenager that I could secretly, you know, write this amazing book that everyone was going to be so impressed with eventually, but I did not have the confidence to show it to anyone. <laughs> um, you know, and definitely that decade long journey was me learning to, how to write. So I'm I'm glad that I did most of that privately. <laughs> <laughs> So your book has some dark moments and some violence in it. And 
is it hard as a writer to make your characters do very bad things or is it fun and liberating? I've heard some writers say that they work out all their frustration and anger on the page. And so what was it like for you? I guess when I started the book as a teenager, it was definitely, you know, I think all teenagers have like a lot of anger issues, learning to deal with their emotions for the first time. So initially it was... I don't, everyone was kind of a caricature, I guess. Like Nina was the good guy and Ellis was the bad guy and she was really good and he was really evil. So I I definitely exaggerated those elements at first. And then later on, they became more complicated and more layered and nobody's 100% good and 100% bad. Actors sometimes really like playing bad guys, you know, or or bad girls, you know, because it's not who they are as a person. So it's kind of fun to able to pretend. Naturally, I'm very like conflict averse for sure. So it was difficult at times just to like put my characters into really uncomfortable situations because in in real life, I avoid uncomfortable situations as much as possible. (laughs) So it was definitely my agent Tori had to read through it and she kept trying to tease out more conflict where she could you know, essentially saying like, are there more skeletons in the closet we could add? And, you know, never giving me any specifics as to what I should add, but definitely pushing me to add more layers of difficulty for the characters, which didn't 100% come naturally to me. So I guess for the last year, you've worked as a bookseller at Carmichael's, which is an independent bookstore here in Louisville when you aren't writing. So has working in a bookstore given you insights into publishing, book promotion, And readers being on both sides of selling the books, but also writing the books? Yeah. um, I mean, it's definitely interesting to see what kind of books people gravitate towards. And I think that definitely influences the kind of things that I gravitate towards now when I'm writing, just knowing what's popular, particularly in this area. (laughs) But that can also be a double-edged sword. I've definitely had you know, a lot of thoughts lately about like, what's going to be popular, what's going to sell rather than what do I really want to work on next? Um, So that can can make things more difficult instead of easier, for sure. But what I really loved about working at Carmichael's is, you know, when I launched this book, I was able to do it at Carmichael's with, you know, my friends, you know, my coworkers, that was really nice to have them behind me this whole time. And it's it's always weird when someone comes up to the register with a copy of my book. And like a lot of the times I won't say anything, but then my coworkers will jump in and be like, oh, she wrote that book. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. They're always there to toot my horn for me. <laughs> you know, you said that you had worked on this like for 10 years, like from the time you wrote it, when did you start really working to publish it? And how did you go about that process? Yeah, um, I guess it was probably about eight years into the process. You know, I've said that I've written so many drafts of this, but I never quite got to the end because I'd always think of, you know, oh, this character's all wrong, so I need to start over from the beginning. So I have a lot of half drafts and a lot of like three-fourths done drafts. um, And I think it took like until eight years in when I finally typed the end, (laughs) which was when I, I had the concept and the characters down. It wasn't necessarily polished at that point, but... I finally felt like I had something cohesive and something that I was not totally embarrassed to show someone. So at that point is when I started pursuing publication. First, I I entered this program called Author Mentor Match, which is this program where you can submit your novel and you can be chosen by 
a published author or someone who's agented or is tied to the industry somehow. And they'll be your mentor, essentially. They'll read your book and give you feedback and kind of guide you through the process of publication. So I did that and got my novel all polished up. And then I started querying, which is, you know, where writers send out pitches to agents and try to get representation. And that process took about a year because my agent requested some edits and we kind of went back and forth before I signed with her. And then the process of selling it to an editor took, I think, another year. So it's a really slow process. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you definitely have to be dedicated to what you're trying to sell. So what are you working on next? And I'm wondering if your writing process has changed or if it stayed the same from when you were writing as a teenager. Yeah, I'm in the process of editing my second book right now, which is another young adult book set in a small Indiana town. And it's about a girl who runs a ghost tour in a town where a murder takes place. So it's her trying to run this ghost tour and telling all these stories from the past in her town and also dealing with the aftermath of this more recent terrible thing that happened. Um, So that's what I've been working on lately. And as far as my writing process goes, I mean, I had to modify it a lot for COVID. Because I used to say, like, I cannot write at my house because Mm. I had a really hard time, like, separating relaxation time with writing time. Like, I always say if I'm anywhere near my bed, I'm just going to, like, get in it and not (laughs) not what I'm supposed to do. So I'd always go to cafes. Um, That was always my favorite place to work or the library. And then for that whole year, pretty much, I couldn't do that. So I had to learn how to work from home. And I work outside a lot um, just to kind of get some separation from home life and work life. Yeah, but it's still something that I'm not like 100% great at. <laughs> Did you put hazard tape like around your bedroom door? so that, like, you could... <laughs> I mean, I, I have a dog, so it wouldn't have worked even if I did. <laughs> well, it has been super cool talking with you about the hollow inside. Like I said, I'm halfway through, so I am interested to see what is going to happen. So I finished it and I keep saying, now, where are you now? Because I don't want to give anything away. (laughs) I already have my opinions about Nina's. All right. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Brooke Lauren Davis and with Carrie. Carrie, you've been racing through all those audiobooks, and I am certain that I cannot catch up with you now for the number of books in 2021. And I'm just have resigned myself to it. But tell me what it is that you are going to talk about today. What book? I have read 88 books so far this year. So you're wow. beating me by like, 20 some so i'm never gonna i'm never gonna catch up but go ahead you know you rub it in in. okay i will (laughs) hey you know what i am enjoying this because last year we were really close and then you pulled ahead of me at the last minute and so i am just gonna enjoy winning while i can i'm about 25 percent of the way done i started an audiobook called Dolly Parton song teller my life in lyrics and Dolly Parton is just awesome I'm not a super fan of hers or anything but she is just so fun and interesting to listen to so I was expecting this to be like her reading her own book it's a little different from what I expected it almost sounds like an interview 
And so I'm not sure what this looks like, like on the written page, but there's a, a guy, I guess it's this Robert K. Orman who does the narrating a little bit, but then she tells these stories. And so she has talked so far about like why she wrote the lyrics, what inspired a number of her songs. And so she's talked about growing up in the mountains of Tennessee. And she's talked about her marriage to her husband. I think they've been married like close to 60 years. And he is a super loner, reserved, definitely not in the spotlight person. And then it is just so fun, you know, to listen to her voice. She's totally she's just Dolly. I mean, what can I say? Even if you don't know a lot about Dolly Parton, which I didn't know a lot, it's just fascinating to listen to. I think she said there were 12 children in her family. And one of her songs was actually inspired by the death of her uh, baby brother. So just super interesting. If you like music, if you like knowing what inspires musicians, then this might be something you want to check out. Well, and I feel like Dolly has taken on a whole new, like she's not just a country music singer. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with being a country music singer. That is a great thing. But what I mean is her life and her, I don't know, life philosophy, I guess, I feel like has taken on this new life of its own. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. But she talks about her imagination library, which Mm. we talked about when we interviewed Gary and Jema from the American Printing House for the Blind. And in this, she, Dolly Parton, talks about her father was sort of her inspiration for starting that because he was not educated. And, And that was not unusual at the time. They made their livelihood from farming and working. And so she said he felt maybe a little bit embarrassed by that because he could not read. And so she said her father, she she thinks that he actually was more proud of her for starting that program that has now, you know, just expanded. She said when they started it, they were hoping it would maybe go to the next county. And now it has just become this huge thing. And she wanted him involved in that and how much it meant to to her, of course, but also how much it, it meant to her dad. So she has a lot of love for her family. And I think she's just just a person with a lot of integrity and that sometimes people in the media, you know, public figures aren't always known for their integrity. It, just listening to it, it makes you feel good. So so I want to make sure I understand. There's a man who's narrating it and he's interviewing her and then you hear her voice too. So she says her parts. Yes, she does. But it, it, but like I said, I mean, I was anticipating that it would just be her reading something. Right. But that's not the way it sounds. It sounds almost like an interview. So like I said, I haven't seen the book itself, the printed word. So I'm not sure what, that looks like but it you know it was different than what I expected it's still very interesting and I'm enjoying it but it sounds more like an interview so Brooke what have you been reading uh yeah I'm also reading about a celebrity right now (laughs) yeah I'm uh, listening to the rural diaries by Hillary Burton she was Peyton Sawyer on a show called One Tree Hill which is a show that I I loved as a teenager and actually, there's a there's a character on there named Brooke Davis, um, oh. <laughs> and which is partially why I added the Lauren to my name because when you search Brooke Davis, it's just like a million results about Brooke Davis from One Tree Hill. <laughs> so I wanted to be a little more more searchable than that for the book. 
But yeah, it's been really good. She reads it herself. I love, you know, memoirs that are read by the author just because I feel like you get an extra, just an extra layer from, from seeing how they read it. And it's about her moving from this big celebrity life and instead moving on to a farm in New York um, called Mischief Farm. It's been really interesting hearing about what that transition was like. And she takes over this uh, sweet shop in town and renovates it and casts off all the, the fame and the fortune that she had before for this simpler version of life, which has been really interesting to read about. Now, isn't she married to an actor? It's uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, who plays the dad on Supernatural, and he's in The Walking Dead. <laughs> so he seems like a very cool person. They seem like a like a great power couple, for sure. I love the idea of that, of that though. Someone who's had fame and then just stepping back and becoming just a quote unquote, normal person and what that's like. She kind of talks a lot about what we were talking about before about small towns. And she like makes it sound like this wonderful, idyllic thing, which it totally can be, you know, interesting to to hear her take on that for sure. So Amy, the person Mm -hmm. who's like 30 books behind me, 20 books behind me. Yeah, 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 yeah. All (laughs) right now. (laughs) I read a book called The Kindest Lie by Nancy Johnson, and it came out this past February, and it's a story that examines race, class, and gender, and it's set in a manufacturing town in Indiana with the backdrop of Obama's first presidential win in 2008. And the town's main employer has been an automobile manufacturing plant, but it was recently closed. It laid off all of its workers it left the town and the citizens are down on their luck. And so our main character, Ruth, is a young, affluent black woman who grew up in this Indiana town, but she went to Yale and she got an engineering degree, landed a great job, married an equally successful black man and now lives in Chicago. And she has tried to distance herself from the town and the family who raised her, which was her her grandparents and her older brother. And now she hardly ever goes back to visit. But she has a secret that she feels is tearing apart her marriage and is leaving her with a feeling of guilt that she wants to make right. So the secret is that as a senior in high school, she got pregnant and had a baby, which her grandmother quickly adopted out, even though Ruth wasn't really given a choice about it. But her grandmother felt that the only way that Ruth could be successful and to attend Yale like she had planned was to give the baby away. So if you jump ahead 11 years, Ruth goes back to her hometown at Christmas and decides she needs to know what happened to her baby, which was a boy. And where is he? And to make sure that he has good parents. And while she's at home, she meets an 11 year old white boy, the same age as her biological son, who everyone calls Midnight. And he's the grandson of her grandmother's best friend. And he's had a hard time of it. His mother died in childbirth with a younger sibling And his father's been laid off from his job at the auto plant. So now Midnight lives with his grandmother because his dad's drinking too much and he keeps moving around because he can't pay his rent. The grandmother's taking care of him, Midnight, but she's also taking care of her youngest daughter, who's a single mother. There's just a lot of mouths to feed and Midnight feels a little lost and unwanted. But when he meets Ruth, he feels a connection with her because they both are interested in science and she gives him attention that he isn't getting anyplace else. And this is the start of a story about Ruth and Midnight and how her investigation into her biological son puts their fates on a collision course. What I found most interesting about this book is that Nancy Johnson is an author of color who in her book is trying to understand white rage, whites feeling left behind. 
Johnson isn't giving it a pass, but through her characters, she is trying to see the other side. And so the book has alternating chapters from Ruth's point of view and from Midnight's point of view. So you're getting a black and white perspective. And the town is racially mixed. Whites and blacks are working together at the auto plant, or they did. And that is how Ruth and Midnight's grandmothers became friends. So it's interesting to see how things are working or not working in this microcosm of America. And we see that even though Midnight has many black friends, he doesn't totally get that he is treated differently by the townspeople, that he's able to get away with things that his black friends would get in trouble for, sometimes almost fatally so. But Ruth is also treated differently. The black community that she came from is proud of her, but they're also resentful of her because they think that she views herself as better than them. This is a debut novel, and there were some areas where I thought that you know, she maybe could have had some stronger dialogue or some richer character building. But I thought that the issues that she brought up were extremely thought provoking and her treatment of them was something I had not read before. So to me, it was a successful debut and I'm anxious to read what other things this author comes out with. Sounds good. That book sounds really good, by the way. All right. Well, we are going to take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Brooke her three about me. We are back with Brooke, and we're going to ask her her three about me. Question number one. We read that during the pandemic, you spent time playing ambiance rooms on YouTube. So what the heck is this? Since we're middle-aged girls, we don't know what that is. And how does it aid your creative process? Um, Yeah, before the pandemic, I didn't know what they were either. Um, I kind of stumbled across them, but they're just still frame of a scene in these YouTube videos. Like it'll be, you know, a garden or inside a cafe or, you know, something like that. And it's like all the, the background noises that would be happening in these places. I guess I sort of gravitated towards them initially because I couldn't go to cafes anymore. And the noise and the atmosphere of working in a cafe was always really good for my focus. You know, I'd put it up on my TV and I'd have like a picture of a cafe essentially. And you could hear all the normal coughing, making noises and like chatter in the background, things like that. And it sort of helped transport me to that environment when I, I couldn't go to it in person for a long time. But there are all kinds of different ones. You can go to like a, a witch's cabin in the woods or something. There are all sorts of them. And I really like exploring all these different places and it transports you in a way that's not going to be distracting when you're trying to work on something else. So I, I love them. <laughs> that's very cool. I have, Now I'm going to have to, to Google them and find out what those are about. Well, I don't know if what I'm thinking of is considered an ambiance room, but we have found for our dogs, there are YouTube channels that are... Squirrels? (laughs) Absolutely. They're uh, like a nature video with birds chirping and you see little squirrels, little chipmunks and birds and things. And one of our dogs specifically loves to watch it. She gets very interested in watching, especially the the retriever really likes to see the birds. My other dog really likes the squirrels, but (laughs) it makes me think of those ambiance rooms a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely the same concept. I think my favorites are like the the crackling fireplace rooms. Um, I just love that sound. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, question number two. Are you a sweet or a salty person? And... What is your favorite sweet or salty treat 
we are talking like pandemic brain here and we've all gained 15 pounds. (laughs) Oh yeah, me too. (laughs) Definitely salty. Uh, Sweet things tend to make me feel a little sick. I I was listening to, I think it was your last episode where one of you was ranting about donuts. I definitely related. There's definitely such a thing as too much of a good thing. So so what you're saying is that your team carry on donuts, right? I can't handle too much sweet stuff. It just makes me ill. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm definitely more team salty. Chips and salsa, for sure. I could Chips I could eat that day. Oh, I'm, I could eat Chipotle like every day of my life. <laughs> so, <laughs> they have very good chips and salsa. I do really like their chips. They're like thin and salty. I think that theirs are always really light and crisp and like extra salty, which I love. Yeah. And like a lime flavor to them. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I do like lime chips. See, my problem is I'm a sweet and a salty person. I actually like my sweet and salty together. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So really, what I think we're all team carb, right? Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah, sure. All right. You are a Jeopardy fan. So is there a category that's your favorite, but that you're actually terrible at? That's the first question. Oh, yeah. I am good at the literature questions, but I always think I'm going to be better at like the history questions than I am <laughs> because I'm like, oh, I read like a ton of historical fiction, so I'll like kill this and... <laughs> I guess my historical fiction is more focused on the romance scenes than it is on like historical fact, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's stronger on the fiction than on the history. Right. I don't learn a whole lot, I guess, as much as I think I do anyway. And my brother is a history teacher as well. And I'm sure he'd be ashamed if he actually knew how many of those questions I don't know. (laughs) For me, it's the potent potables. I just love the title of that category, potent potables. Although actually after COVID, I might be better at the potent potables category now because I did increase my visits to the liquor store. But (laughs) I remember when I was young, I thought potables, it made me think of like um, a toilet, even though that's not what it refers to. But I think that that's why it's in my head that I just love that title. So who do you think should be the new host to replace Alex Trebek now that he's passed away? I see in the media, there's team LeVar Burton. Do you have any thoughts on this? No, LeVar Burton, I think would be great. I honestly have not watch many of the guest hosts because just after Alex Trebek was gone it was just sad (laughs) yeah I don't know if I can I can imagine anyone filling those shoes I don't know he was just so iconic (laughs) he was yeah well I think you know we should all cross our fingers for LeVar Burton I think he'd be awesome yeah I think so too and he's a reader and he did reading rainbow what's not to like exactly (laughs) so I don't even watch Jeopardy and I'm team LeVar so yeah. yeah, we've had a lot of teams today. Yeah, that's our that's our theme. <laughs> well, Brooke, thank you so much for being a guest on our show. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to speak with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. You can find Brooke Lauren Davis on Instagram at Brooke Lauren Davis. Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our show? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. 
The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Do you know another great way to get the word out? Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. The more ratings we have, the more likely that our show will pop up for listeners looking for bookish podcasts. And writing a review is great too. If you leave a review, we'll read it on the air. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.